0: Spectrum's Next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news.
1: Good afternoon. My name is Brad Swift. I'm the host of today's show. Today's interview is with Elizabeth Muller, co-founder and executive director of Berkeley Earth Surface Temperature. The Berkeley Earth Surface Temperature Project is redoing the analysis of the Earth Surface Temperature record in a rigorous manner, that addresses the criticisms of previous analysis. All their work to date is available free at their website, berkeleyearth.org. I want to briefly explain two terms that are used in the interview. Krigging is a geostatistic method devised by Daniel Krig, a mining engineer, in 1951. AMO is the Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation. The oscillation is principally the change of sea surface temperature over time in the North Atlantic Ocean. On to the interview. Welcome, Elizabeth Muller, to Spectrum. Thank you. How did Berkeley Earth come into being? Is that how you like to refer to it? Is it Berkeley Earth? Berkeley
0: Earth, Earth. yes, that's right. How did
1: Berkeley Earth come into being?
0: Um, Rich and I had been working together for a couple of years, and... We kept being asked about climate issues. Rich had been involved in climate for a long time. He he taught his class physics for future presidents, in which he goes into global warming. And he and I were working together doing consulting on energy and environment issues, but people kept asking about global warming. And we had been uncomfortable with some of the elements of of global warming for some time. There was the station quality issue, which had been raised by Anthony Watts, which both of us uncomfortable, but we weren't quite sure what to do about it. There were other issues as well. There was uh, the data selection issue. Why did the major groups only use 20% of the data, 10% in recent years? But it was also in part the climate gate scandal that really made us think somebody else needs to come in, have a fresh look at this. We really wanted to be able to lower the barriers to entry. The data was inaccessible. People couldn't get it. It was impossible for any group to come in and easily do an analysis of global warming. And this is such an important area of policy work, of economics, of so many elements of the world today, that we felt everybody should be able to go in and look at the data themselves, look at the analysis, and really understand what the issues were. So that's why we decided to create the Berkeley Earth Project to do exactly that.
1: For our audience' sake, we should identify Rich.
0: Yes. Richard Muller is a longtime physicist. He's a MacArthur winner. He's been involved in climate issues for a long time. He wrote a technical book on ice ages and astronomical causes. He's been teaching physics for future presidents here at Berkeley for, I think, about 10 years now. He also wrote the textbook and a popular book called Physics for Future Presidents. He's also my dad, He and I started working together about, I guess it was about four years ago now. I had been doing consulting, um, mostly in Europe, and uh, kept getting asked about energy issues. And so I wanted to bring him into my consulting firm. But instead, the two of us ended up creating a business together, which has been great fun. He's he's a lot of fun to work with.
1: Beside wanting to clarify things or level a playing field, if you will, and make it more accessible, was there a sense that you were the right group to do it?
0: Well, we weren't a group. We didn't exist as a group at the time. And so it was a question of pulling together the right people from the right backgrounds to create a right group. We did think that we wanted a fresh perspective so that it wasn't necessarily a problem that we were new to this specific area of work. Many of our people had had deep experience with climate change in the past, but we also wanted to combine physics and statistics, modern statistics, bringing in David Berlinger early on was an important choice. We wanted to take a fresh look at the problem using modern statistics, which we believed would allow us to use much more of the data than the previous groups had been able to do.
1: Would you describe the research and planning that you did to form the group and get things started?
0: Sure. We needed a nonprofit. We discovered pretty quickly that in order to do a study like this and raise funding, we needed to be a nonprofit. We didn't have a nonprofit, and nonprofits take quite some time to create. We weren't quite sure what we were going to do about that when Rich had a call from Michael Dittmore in Santa Barbara with a group called Novum. And Michael Dittmore wanted Rich to lead a study on geoengineering. And Rich said, well, you know, I'm not really that interested in doing a study on geoengineering, but if you really want to do a study that's going to have big impact and be very important, you should consider helping us with a study on global warming. And uh, Michael said, hmm, that sounds interesting. Tell me more. So we started talking to him, and it seemed like an ideal group for us to work with. And so Novim came on to house the Berkeley Earth efforts. Um, We also started looking into what the other groups had done. We wanted to look at why they hadn't used more than 20% of the data. What were the issues surrounding the station quality issue raised by Anthony Watts? What were the concerns around the urban heat island that many people had been talking about? This is where people had been saying, yes, there's global warming, but cities, everyone knows cities are warmer than rural areas, and the world is getting more urban So is it possible that the world is getting warmer, not because of carbon dioxide, but because it's getting more urbanized? This is something that we wanted to look at as well. We tried to look very carefully at what some of the other groups had done. And we discovered that many of the adjustments that they had made to the data, they had done manually. And they hadn't really kept very careful track of what exactly they had done. So even they couldn't go back and duplicate it. And, and this was a concern as well. We, we, you know, this is such an important topic. You want to be able to redo it and make sure you get the same results every time you do. And so that was another thing we, we looked at carefully.
1: Trying to pick the brain of the people who had been dealing with the data, was that extremely helpful and crucial to the project?
0: It was helpful. I mean, it was very useful to speak to them, to meet with them, to try and understand what they were doing. But at the same time, we knew from pretty early on that we wanted to do something totally different. So we weren't trying to duplicate what they had done. We wanted to take a totally new approach, something that had never been done before, use all of the data or are pretty close to all of the data. Um, and we had to develop a modern statistical technique in order to do this. And that was done by Robert Rohde, our lead scientist, in conjunction with David Brillinger, a professor of statistics here at Berkeley. And what that meant was that we weren't adding on to the previous r- research. We were really starting at totally new, from a totally different approach, we didn't know what we were going to find. We didn't know if we were going to find that there was more global warming, or if we were going to find that there was less global warming. We only knew, or we thought we knew, that we weren't going to find the same results as everybody had found before us, which is why it was such a surprise in the end that even using a totally different technique, we ended up with results that were so close to what the previous groups had found. I think that's a really strong statement in terms of what they are and what they mean, is that even though you're using using completely different approaches, you get results that are so, so similar. I think that really strengthens our confidence in the work that we did.
1: Talk a little bit about the gathering of the team.
0: We wanted people on the team who were comfortable looking through huge quantities of data and had actually in the past made discoveries by doing so. So it wasn't enough that they were able to pick apart other people's work. We wanted people who were able to dive in, get their hands dirty, and yet make an unexpected and surprising discovery. Some of the people we chose, Jonathan Wordley, Bob Jacobson, had done this before, but also Saul Perlmutter, who had done this um, in his work in, in cosmology and won the Nobel Prize this past year. So those were the people we wanted, people who had experience doing exactly that.
1: You're listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Today's guest is Elizabeth Muller, co-founder and executive director of Berkeley Earth Surface Temperature. That is really one of the big challenges of all this is the data set
0: size. It is. It's huge. It's huge. And merging that from the different sources was really one of the biggest challenges we had to face. I should say Robert had to face. He was the one who really did most of the work. But he had 15 different data sources in almost as many different formats, all kinds of mess that really had to be sorted through. And that, in many ways, was one of the biggest challenges of the project was just getting through that. And we figured if we did nothing else, but sifting through this data and putting together a clean data set, that would already be a huge contribution.
1: So given that task, what other sort of methodology had you tried to impose on this data?
0: Well, the other important elements there's collecting the data, cleaning the data, um, merging the data, but the other part was, of course, analyzing the data. Um, and the other groups had only been able to use 20% of the data because they had a constraint. They needed to have long, continuous records. Well, Robert Rohde, um, together with David Brillinger, developed a new technique based on Krieging in which they're able to to analyze all of the data, or virtually all of the data. And the result was that we were able to use so much more and yet get very good, very carefully calculated error estimates and go much farther back in time than the previous groups had been able to.
1: And were you satisfied with the data sets that were available, or did you look for other data sets?
0: Robert looked for everything. He really wanted to find all of the data that was out there, and he he did a very complete job, I believe, in doing so.
1: Is that an ongoing process for him?
0: Well, the ongoing process, process is going to be updating it. We have now the 15 databases that this comes from, and they are going to be updated on a regular basis since we want to be able to update our database on a regular basis and have it all automated so that that will just happen every few months or however often we decide it needs to be.
1: And so are these data sets pretty broadly accepted as the best available? Yes, they are. And the source of them is government weather stations? It's,
0: it's mostly government weather station. There's a lot of volunteer weather stations. There's a complete list of the 15 sources, many of which come through NOAA.
1: And I guess NOAA is consolidating a lot of data sets from around the world?
0: Uh, yes, if you look at the data set, it really is around the, from all around the world um, in the modern day. If you go back in time, it becomes less global. If you look at our earliest measurements, you see data really only in the U.S. and Europe, a few places in India. But by the 1900s, you're really getting fairly good coverage of the globe, excepting Antarctica, which doesn't really come into play until the 1950s.
1: Were there any other big challenges
0: I think the cleaning of the data and and developing the analysis framework were were really the biggest challenges. There were a couple surprises, though, the things that we didn't expect. One of the things that we discovered, once we had access to the data, we were able to start playing with and looking for other things that maybe people hadn't noticed before. One of the biggest surprises was a discovery that the oscillations in the data, which everybody had previously said, oh, those are El Nino. Everybody's data goes up and down together, and, and that That's El Nino. Well, when we looked at it very carefully, we discovered that, yes, it is highly correlated to to El Nino, but in fact, it's even more correlated to the Gulf Stream. And that was a big surprise. We didn't expect that, but because we had access to the data, it enabled us to look at these sorts of things. And and we're really very hopeful that now that the world has access to the data, there will be many other important discoveries of this sort.
1: I know that you're doing land surface first, then ocean surface. Is that a natural two-phase project, or are there more phases? Is there more?
0: Well, we wanted to start with the land because, in large part, that's where much of the controversy was. So we figured we wanted to start with a bite-sized piece, though actually I think it was a much bigger bite than we thought it would be. But by analyzing the land, it looks at the issue of the temperature stations, the station quality issue, Anthony Watts, the urban heat island effect, and this data selection issue. Was there a data selection bias because they only used, uh, previous groups had only used 20% of the data. The oceans are going to be interesting in the next phase because of some of the discoveries we've made, such... As the Gulf Stream. So, we're really looking forward now to doing that as a next phase of work because we want to look at this in more detail, see what we can find in terms of the relationship between the Gulf Stream and temperature. The Gulf Stream, um, we found a 60 year cycle in the Atlantic Multidecanal Oscillation, which for the past 30 years has been going up. So, the temperature has been going up and The temperature of the world has been going up, temperature of both the AMO and and of the the land surface temperature, which was unexpected. But it also shows that the 60-year cycle is is at a peak right now, and it's going to start going down. The temperature is going to start going down. What is the impact of this going to be on global warming? Uh, Is it possible that we haven't seen any global warming in the past 13 years, in part because of this AMO cycle and what's going to happen as the AMO cycle starts, starts going down. We don't know, but we think it's a fascinating issue to look at that fits in very naturally with our study of the oceans.
1: And is the ocean data set as extensive as the land data it's set?
0: It's very different. So instead of looking at uh, single locations, you're looking at mainly boats. So they're moving. There's different problems, different issues. But we think now that we have our framework developed, it shouldn't be as difficult as initially looking at the land was.
1: But the analysis framework does have to change somewhat to accommodate for it this. It does
0: have to change somewhat.
1: Different collection process. Absolutely. Nothing's really out there stationary, taking a reading every day. Well,
0: there are now. In modern times, there are buoys, and there's there's some fixed locations. But as you get back in time, as you go back in time, more and more of it come from boats.
1: Your methodology for analyzing the data has less reliance on that longevity of sample?
0: That's right. Our statistical techniques mean that we can work with fragments. We can work with little pieces, which has also been an advantage for dealing with some of these issues of station changes. So you might have a station that, that goes along and is reading a certain temperature within a certain range um, fairly regularly for a number of years. And then all of a sudden the pattern is similar but it's three degrees warmer than it was before. And you say, well what, what's that? Um, what happened here? And previous groups would take that and they say, okay, well this is probably a station move. It's probably not exactly the same location as it was before. Something happened here. Maybe the time of day changed, the time of the day that they were taking the the, the readings And so they corrected it, and and they manually moved those. Either they moved one down or they moved the other one up so that it would be a long, continuous record. Well, with our statistical technique, we just cut it in two. And we say, okay, well, we'll just assume that these are two different Locations, two different records, and handle it as such. And that means that we don't have to worry about adjusting the data. We just cut it, and it makes it much more easy to duplicate, and um, there's no manual adjustments that So there's no need to rationalize judging. why you That's right. made an adjustment. That's right.
1: You're tuned to KALX Berkeley. The show is Spectrum. Our guest is Elizabeth Muller, co-founder and executive director of the Berkeley Earth Surface Temperature Project. In the peer review process that you've now entered into, is there a process for integrating the feedback or at least analyzing what people are saying to you, or is it too soon?
0: No, we've been getting a lot of feedback. So we have the official feedback that comes through the official peer review journals. And uh, we've been working with the reviewers and the editors to incorporate that feedback. Um, We discuss it as a group, we have one of the lead authors go through it in detail, bring any issues to the group, talk about any additional analysis that's required, and go in and, and actually make some of the changes to the papers. But Perhaps even more interestingly is the feedback that we've gotten from the peer review process outside of the official. Journals. Because we've posted our papers online, we've been contacted by a number of scientists from around the world who have gone through our papers in extraordinary detail and looked at some of the things, raised some important questions, um, raised some issues, some concerns, and that's been extremely helpful. I think our papers will be better in the end because of the peer review that we've gotten through the open process, the global process of putting our papers online.
1: In terms of longevity of the, the project and the data set, how long do you envision staying with the project? Is there a point at which you just you're you're done?
0: Well, I think we're not sure. I think we would love to stay involved. I think there's a need to keep updating the data data set, to to keep it live. We would love to to do that, I think. I mean we have somebody in charge of maintaining the data set, but we're not a long term project for now. We're based on on fundraising. We fundraise for the first 18 months. We're now looking to fundraise for the next 18 months. So we have not yet been able to establish that type of permanent longevity that would be necessary to keep doing this on an ongoing basis. But it's certainly something that we're thinking about.
1: I went to your website and was looking around and mm. went into the uh, frequently asked questions. And it noted that none of the scientists involved has taken a public political stand on global warming and I wondered if that was still the case or if as a result of your first release of data there was a revision of that or not?
0: I think that's still true. Our scientists believe that the statement, which you might be referring to, saying that global warming is real, is now a scientific statement. There, There is the data to support that. There's the evidence to support that. There's error bars uh, to support that. So when we make a statement like that, we believe that it's a scientific statement, not a political statement. We haven't looked into other issues, such as how much of it is, is human-caused. And so we haven't taken what I would call political statements on those sorts of issues. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: We don't want to get into the politics because it muddies the science, and we want people to be able to look at our numbers, to look at our analysis and say, okay, we know that this is 100% pure scientific analysis. But on the other hand, there is a need for scientific evaluation of policy to see which policies that are on the table would actually make sense according to science, which ones would actually not really help very much. We don't know how much of this we we might get involved in. We haven't done any of it so far. It might be a question of only saying as as much as we feel can be stated that's really grounded in in the science.
1: So as far as the group trying to get drawn into choosing a prescription for affecting or impacting global warming, that's not really something you the group is interested in it all, right?
0: I don't, I don't think so. I mean, there's there certain elements. That, it does keep coming up as an issue, and there are a lot of people asking us to, to get more involved in this. But we really want to make sure that anything we did say would be very grounded in the science. There might be some limited statements we could make that would be grounded in the science, but we haven't taken a decision on, on that yet.
1: You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. We're speaking with Elizabeth Muller, co-founder and executive director of the Berkeley Earth Surface Temperature Project. And from your experience and personal opinion, is there a prescription that you feel is the best available
0: Well, I think we need a lot of different things. We need energy efficiency. There's a lot that can be done for low cost, no cost, even making money by increasing our energy efficiency. But we also need other things like low cost solar, low cost wind, nuclear. There are many things that are all helpful. But it needs to be something that can be affordable, that can be adopted. In the developing world, China, India, the rest of the developing world, it needs to be cheap. And unless it's cheap enough for them to be able to afford, it's not going to happen. There, there are other priorities. So, so China, their emissions are growing so fast that anything we do has limited impact unless we can set an example that is able to be followed by China. That means it needs to be cheap, It needs to ideally be profitable so that people in China and India and the rest of the developing world can afford to do the same thing. Unfortunately, I don't see this being addressed in the international debate right now at the UN. And it's really an important problem that I wish had more visibility.
1: Is there anything about the group that I haven't asked you that you'd you'd want to bring up?
0: Well... Everything that I've mentioned today is available on our website. So it's berkeleyearth.org. We have all of our papers there. We have our data set in both text format and in MATLAB. We have our programs. We also have a lovely video. I don't know if you've seen the video. It shows a map of the world that is getting warmer and colder and you see weather going across the the different regions of the world and and it takes us from 1800s through to the present.
1: So data visualization.
0: Absolutely. Is that
1: something that you've embraced? It it
0: is. It is. And we've actually gotten um, some requests from some museums who have big globes. I guess they have one up at the Lawrence Hall of Science and and wanting to project our global warming movie onto such a, a globe, which I think would be a fascinating way of looking at it. There's a couple other um, interesting images on our on our website. For example, if you look at the U.S., many people are surprised to learn that about one third of locations in the U.S. have cooled. They haven't warmed two-thirds have warmed but what it means is if you look up your hometown and you might say oh i've never felt any global warming well that's probably true you probably haven't felt any global warming because the amount of global warming that we've seen is so small that it's absolutely overwhelmed by local weather phenomenon and there's one-third chance that you've been living in a in a location that's actually seen cooling over the past 50 years
1: Yeah, the personal relationship with global warming seems to be where a lot of people stumble and feel that it should be something visceral in their daily lives for it to be real and don't take the intellectual leap to regard the data on a worldwide basis. I guess that's really sort of what your group has tried to do. Is
0: yeah, that's absolutely right. One of the difficulties with global warming is that there's been less than one degree global warming in the past 50 years. This is not something that you are going to be able to feel. You might think you have. You might say, oh, yes, if weather feels so different today than it did 10 years ago, that must be global warming. And people do that all the time. They say, oh, it's cold today, global warming, or it's warm today, global warming. But the truth is you can't detect it, you need hundreds, preferably thousands, of records of locations from around the world in order to detect global warming. It's not something that you're going to go out and feel on your own.
1: Do you know of any organizations that have embraced your data and are are going off in some area of research that validates what you started this project to achieve?
0: Um, There are many organizations who have expressed interest in using our data. I think it's still fresh out there, so we're not quite sure who's going to be adopting it on a permanent basis. But we've gotten a lot of feedback. We've gotten a lot of emails. We've gotten a lot of people saying, thank you for this. I've really been interested in getting into this data, and I was never able to do it before. So I suspect that as time goes on and as our papers start to be published, there will be more and more people using our data.
1: Elizabeth Muller, thanks very much for being on Spectrum.
0: Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. I've uh, enjoyed being here.
2: Rick Karneski joins me for the calendar and the news. The Mycological Society of San Francisco will present Flavorful, foul, and Far Fungi on Tuesday the 21st at 7 p.m. in San Francisco's Randall Museum, 199 Museum Way. Daniel Winkler, the author of A Field Guide to Edible Mushrooms of the Northwest, will share his experiences collecting and eating wild mushrooms and in his travel agency Mushrooming LLC that annually organizes and leads echo tours to Tibet and South America. For more info on this free event, visit www.mssf.org. The Science at Cal lecture for February will be
1: on Saturday, February 18th at 11 a.m. in Stanley Hall, Room 105. The talk will be given by Professor Buford Price and is entitled Single-Celled Microbes in Polar Ice, a Proxy for Evolution Over 100 Million Generations. The presence of picocyanobacteria in ice at all depths in both Greenland and Antarctica provides an opportunity to study microbial evolution over about 100 million generations. Professor Price will discuss how this vast study is now possible.
2: Physicist Michio Kaku will appear at the First Congregational Church of Berkeley at 2345 Channing Way on Thursday the 23rd from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. Advance tickets are $12 or get in at the door for $15. SUNY Professor Kaku co-founded String Field Theory and popularizes physics on his Science Channel show and on two radio programs. He recently released Physics of the Future, which gives a vision of the coming century based on interviews with over 300 scientists that discuss cutting-edge medicine, computers, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, energy production, and astronautics. Visit kpfa.org for more information. Behavioral neuroscientist Karen Ursch of the University of Cambridge and her colleagues have an article in the February 3rd issue of Science that studies the genetics of addiction. The team tested 50 pairs of siblings. One in each pair was addicted to cocaine or amphetamines, while the other had no history of drug abuse. Participants pressed a left or right arrow key when seeing a similar arrow on a computer screen, unless they heard a tone, in which case they were to do nothing. People with poor self-control, including most drug addicts, find it difficult to refrain from pressing the key. Surprisingly, the siblings who were not addicted to drugs performed just as badly as their siblings who were, and indeed, brain scans showed the pairs had very similar brain irregularities. In commentary on the article, imaging specialist Nora Volkow of the National Institute of Drug Abuse in Bethesda notes that even in children as young as 4 to 12, traits such as self-control and flexibility can be improved by targeted interventions including exercise training, martial arts, yoga, and computer games designed to enhance working memory.
1: The music heard during the show is by Lostana David from his album Folk and Acoustic, made available under Creative Commons License 3.0 attribution.
0: Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.com. KALX at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.